Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's April the 16th, 2022, a weekend, a Saturday morning in San Francisco, bright Saturday morning, it rained yesterday. Unfortunately, wars don't take the weekend off and the war in Ukraine continues its nightmarish course. Uh, the Wall Street Journal leads today with the news that Russian forces are expanding their footprint, to use a metaphor, in eastern Ukraine. Here we have an image from the New York Times for those people watching of a large graveyard, active graveyard of military personnel in Ukraine um, uh, with the news as well that Russia is targeting military facilities across the Ukraine. Um, the economic crisis seems to be deepening. Uh, according to the Times, a Russian default is looming, which would result in massive hardship, not, I think, for Putin's circle, but for the ordinary people of Russia. Um, there's a cultural war going on, it seems, as well, according to one interesting piece in the FT today. Uh, Putin has sparked what they call a revival of the West. The West has rediscovered its mojo, thanks to Vladimir Putin. Putin isn't, of course, particularly keen on the West, he has banned Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, the uh, Foreign Secretary and another prominent conservative, Ben Wallace, from entering the country. So we really are back in the very depths of the Cold War. It's a kind of hot Cold War, cultural war, military war, economic war. Uh, last Late last year, I had uh, Joseph uh, Weisberg on the show. He's a well-known screenwriter and a man who's, I, I'm not sure, and I, and, I, and I want to use this language carefully, he's sympathetic to Russia. Uh, he wrote a book last year called Russia Upside Down, an exit strategy for the second Cold War. We talked about how to figure out how Russia and America could get on uh, last year. Um, and I invited him back on the show, and um, he's back. I appreciate his willingness to appear on the show. Joe, uh, not everyone would be willing to talk about a book like um, Russia Upside Down, an exit strategy for the Second Cold War in April 2022. Do you think you got it wrong? If you were writing that book again, Russia Upside Down, would you write the same book? I would have written the same book at the same time. Uh, if you asked, would I write that same book now? I think I would write the more or less the same book with with an expanded section on Ukraine and talking about what's going on. And I, I suppose the main thing there that might be different is that uh, in the book, I, I try to chart uh, Putin's movement from being somebody who came to power, I believe, with some openness towards the West, somewhat more liberal at home, Little more willing to engage the West without uh, too much hostility as he got more and more hostile towards the West. And I tried to chart why, and I tried to show what the West's role was, for example, expanding NATO, which everybody now is familiar with because we're, we're talking about it all the, all the time in regard to Ukraine. But I think that had this already happened, I think some of the, you know, 
semi-optimism I had that there was, you know, inside Putin still a part of that early version of him that maybe, maybe, maybe uh, could be resuscitated or brought back. I think I'd be a lot more uh, pessimistic on that now. Joe, this week we had the uh, University of Chicago sociologist, anthropologist of war, Chris Blackman on the show, talking about his new book, Why We Fight. And he gave me five reasons why Putin went to war in Ukraine. They're sort of five conceptual reasons why people generally wage war. What's your sense of, of why Putin invaded Ukraine? What, what is the main reason or the main reasons for this invasion? I'd be interested to see that piece. I, I don't know what it says. I, I know that there is the sort of general response that people have when Putin takes uh, aggressive action or, or military action, which is that he can't stand the fact that the Soviet Union fell apart. He wants to reconstitute the Russian empire. He wants Russia to be a great power again. He wants to protect his wealth and the wealth of his friends. Uh, I don't really buy most of that as the fundamental reasoning for this war or, again, any of the other wars he's engaged in. Uh, I think it is makes a lot more sense to listen to what he's saying, look at what he's doing. And although I don't always take it at face value, for example, we can talk about the very odd and awful claim that Ukraine is run by Nazis. I think the more consistent long-term claim that Russia feels threatened by the encroaching West is probably the most fundamental reason he went to war. And then needing to have more somehow needing further justifications. He has developed a kind of a pseudo-historical theory of the, of the world in Russia in which, you know, for example, Ukraine essentially belongs to him and, and should have been Russian except for a series of mistakes. But, but I, I think the sort of inciting emotional and psychological issue uh, is fear, anxiety, and distrust of the West. Joe, we had um, Charles Coote, Kupchan, a very prominent American foreign policy expert on the show yesterday, actually. He's the author of Isolationism. He's Council of Foreign Relations man, very well placed in D.C., worked intimately in the Clinton administration. He had a piece this week out on Putin's war in Ukraine. It's time for America to get real. And he reminded me and our audience that at least in his view, the Clinton and perhaps the Obama administration screwed up on, on, on the NATO issue, um, allowing uh, or, or suggesting, that, uh, suggesting that Ukraine might join uh, NATO was a serious strategic miscalculation, which could only insult, incite, not only insult, but incite somebody like Putin. What's your take on the NATO question? You, you touched on it earlier. Yeah, let me talk about that in some detail, because I strongly agree with that opinion. Um, and it's been interesting, again, to see a lot of experts weighing in. And, it, you know, look, we all get lost in our information bubbles. I may be lost in an information bubble, but it looks to me like there are a significant number of the real uh, kind of historical experts and political experts on this topic are leaning in that direction, that in general... There were many, many people, people keep saying George Kennan warned that if you expanded NATO, they would find it threatening. Well, it turns out William Burns also warned. And then the list starts getting longer and longer and longer. And at the time, there were many, many experts saying this is going to be seen as an aggressive, hostile act. And the closer we get and the more people that join NATO, the more we are going to spark a conflict. The, the Ukrainian piece is sort of interesting 
because at the end of the day, the I think the feeling is that Ukraine probably was never going to join NATO. That wasn't in the cards. And the promise you're referring to, to sort of hold it out to them was, you know, unlike the Baltics, which is probably a mistake and probably threatened Russia, but that doesn't seem to be the one that led to war. It was sort of this case where it could go either way that is that has sparked the problem. Uh, I read a very interesting piece that argued that it was really a disaster because once we said to Ukraine, well, let's hope eventually you join NATO, uh, almost any Ukrainian politician was going to have to run in that direction was going to have to, as they put in the piece, try to go through that door. And so we were invariably going to end up here with us not actually willing to go to war for them, but them at war with Russia. So it's sort of the worst of all possible circumstances, the the greatest human and and political disaster. And I, it sounds like that's in accord with what your previous guest was saying, that that was a vast strategic miscalculation. Well, Coop Chan was one of Clinton's foreign policy people, and he makes it clear in the interviews yesterday that um, he argued strongly against, and he lost the the argument. And he thinks it's a mistake. Yeah, well, he was not. Uh, he was not alone. He was right, not alone. He's certainly not alone on that you, front. Although he he he's a little ambivalent about being associated in the sort of hardcore realist camp of men like Charles. Mearsheimer. I'm not sure how familiar. I mean, your your day job is as a screenwriter, so I'm not sure how familiar you are, Joe, with foreign policy debates. But what do you think of the work of people like Mearsheimer? You know, most of my familiarity with him is from this recent conflict where he has suddenly been thrust into the limelight. I think I read somewhere that a speech of his on YouTube had something like 25 million views, which is hard to believe that we, if that's right, it's hard to believe we live in a world where a, a policy expert like that could have 25 million people listening to them. I think that's probably a good thing. Uh, just in general, listening to experts, I don't mean more because I agree with him. Uh, I would sort of myself say that I uh, agree with his, fundamentally agree with his analysis about NATO, that it was pushing Russia into a corner and that any state and certainly our state would respond the same way that Russia is if pushed into that same corner. I I'm a little less certain that I understand how he turns that into, you know, kind of principles and rules of political science that are a little foggier to me and that I, I can't comment or or stand behind so clearly. But what I hear him saying about NATO and Russia sounds right to me. What concerns some people, and I have to admit I'm a little concerned with this, is NATO seems to be being transformed, maybe it already always was, an organization which is dedicated to encircling controlling Russia with the the Finns and the Swedes now talking about joining NATO. D does that worry you that this huge military organization, probably the most powerful organization ever to exist in the history of the world, should be focused, dedicated to confronting one single power? Uh, it, it does worry me. It's one of the complicated things that happened when the Soviet Union collapsed. And then, of course, there was no more Warsaw Pact. So since NATO was there to contain or possibly one day fight or defend against the Soviet Union, what was the point of keeping it? Now, I would have, if I had been in charge of policy, then I would have said, let's not move too fast. Let's not disband. Let's see where things go over the next 20, 30 years. Let's see if we can have uh, such peaceful relations with Russia that it's clear that we can get a little smaller every year and, and eventually not have this organization anymore. But they did the opposite. They grew. They expanded. 
And when you say they're sort of devoted to encircling Russia, I doubt that consciously the people who make the decisions about NATO quite think that way, but I think they would say that they need to defend against Russia and defending against Russia, reasonably speaking, looks to Russia like encircling Russia. So I would say the next enormous colossal mistake to make or to avoid is to have Finland and Sweden joining NATO. I think that it will be, they will make themselves less safe, not more safe. And to the degree that we ask them or hope that they're willing to kind of take some of the risks that go along with neutrality to keep the to keep the world safer. I hope that's what we will ask them to do. Joe, we had uh, Michael Ignatia, a very prominent Canadian political philosopher. He's a historian, politician on the show recently. He argued that we, we shouldn't take the nuclear option off the table in Ukraine. And, and he's probably not that unusual amongst liberals or left liberals. Are you concerned with the way in which the, 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 the traditional um, divisions between pacif- between hawks and doves, between pacifists and warmongers seems to have been turned upside down, to borrow uh, your the title of your book, Russia Upside Down. And it's liberals now who seem more eager for war and conservatives who are more committed to a peace with Russia. I don't know if I'm quite willing to agree with that generalization. I I think that what I have generally seen, and this was true during the original Cold War and seems to me to remain true now, is this is the one area where liberals and conservatives agree. They tend to walk in lockstep, first in how we should confront the Soviet Union and now in how we should confront Russia. There is a sort of a right-wing fringe, and maybe it's getting bigger, uh, that is pointing out that you know, making some reasonable points about this war, some unreasonable points. You mean uh, the, the Tucker Carlson's of the world? Yeah, yeah, uh, that that is what I mean. Uh, and then you have the very odd and confusing spectacle of Donald Trump, who was, you know, friendlier towards Russia, but also in a very perverse, odd way and really didn't fit into any group. You know, I write in my book that the sort of the odd thing about Trump is he's the first president in so long to come along and say, maybe this country doesn't have to be our enemy, which I happen to completely agree with. But then every single thing he actually did worked, you know, to create chaos and havoc havoc and sort of make our foreign policy less sensical. So the option to him so far has been very anti-Russian leaders uh, who, but I think they walk in lockstep and you don't see a big difference between Democrats and Republicans. This may all get really taught, a lot is getting tossed up into the air and you see a lot of people trying to figure out what's going to happen when it all, when it all lands. So I don't know where we're going to stand a year from now, but right now it seems still closer to a consensus. Yeah. One wonders whether it will ever truly land. You brought up Donald Trump. I've had Marie Yovanovitch on the show a couple of weeks ago, the former Ukrainian ambassador, a U.S. ambassador to Ukraine who stood up to Trump, as well as Fiona Hill, who also stood up to Donald Trump, one of his Russia experts. Do you think one of the problems with all these mixed messages and misunderstandings and perhaps poorly thought out strategies is that liberals in particular or progressives have mixed up Putin and Trump? And when they think of Putin, they unavoidably, inevitably, unconsciously think of Trump and vice versa? <laughs> I mean, that's a sort of interesting, interesting question. I'm, I'm not sure, I'm not quite sure how to answer it. I, I think that uh, probably even without Trump, the same reaction 
to an animosity towards Putin uh, would have been evident across the political spectrum. But I suspect you're right that now there's kind of an additional uh, kind of association and people are getting more worried, not just about what's happening in Russia, not just about what's happening in Ukraine, but they're increasingly worried about America's future. And I ask you this, Joe, specifically, uh, Fiona Hill wrote a book about how the Russian and American ways of life were becoming very similar. Her best-selling book, wonderful book, There Is Nothing For You Here, Finding Opportunity in the 21st Century. I ask you because, uh, of course, you are, um, um, uh, alongside your work or your, your, your books, you're, you're particularly well-known as the um, original uh, uh, scriptwriter, I think, executive scriptwriter for the Americans, a very successful series about the similarity, I think, between Russians and Americans in the Cold War. Is that fair or am I oversimplifying, vulgarizing what the Americans is about? No, no, that, that's certainly a good, a good starting point. I'm glad you brought it up because in a way, you know, the stuff we've been talking about, uh, I feel like a lot of what I'm saying about Ukraine and Russia and the United States, you know, plenty of other people are saying. But the the thing I would like to add that I'm not hearing as much and where I'm spending a lot of my mental time is, and I, I recommend this generally in the book, as I say, at least it's been, I think, useful for me, is to generally, I like to focus more on myself, more on my own country, what I can learn about myself and my country from what is going on with Russia, that Russia sometimes acts as a very complex and, and interesting mirror for myself and for ourselves. So in this latest tragedy in Ukraine, and before I say what I'm about to say, I, I, let me be clear that I agree with everyone who is calling this war a human catastrophe, a crime, a terrible mistake by Putin, inexcusable. It is all those things, as most wars are, but it is certainly an example of all of that. But I've been trying to understand what is the, I would say, increasingly evident widespread popular Russian support for the war. And a lot of people will tell you, well, people are only watching state TV. They're just fed a diet of lies. I, you know, I take that on in my book. There, that's there's some truth to that, but it's also exaggerated to a certain degree. It is also getting worse now, as we all know. But what I really uh, associate with, or think back to, when I try to understand Russian support for this war, is my own support for the war in Iraq. And I think back to how similar it was. By the way, I'm not saying it was exactly the same. I'm saying it was similar enough to help me see myself more clearly. So first of all, I was afraid after September 11 of more terror attacks. I was terrified by the idea that somebody like Saddam Hussein would hate America and have weapons of mass destruction. So I was afraid, and I think that is somewhat parallel to Russians being afraid of a hostile power or hostile collection of powers getting closer and closer and closer to their border. Again, not a perfect analogy, but similar enough. Uh, I was fed a diet. I, it's interesting. I had dinner with my brother the other night. And we had a long discussion about if we were- fed. And your brother is also a very- prominent media fan. I assume yeah, yeah. you're talking about yes. Jacob Weisberg. Yes, my brother Jacob Weisberg, who was editor of Slate for many years and runs up with uh, Malcolm Gladwell, runs Pushkin Enterprises now and does a lot of great and interesting podcasts. And he was sort of challenging me because I said that in the Iraq war, I was also fed a steady diet of lies about, for example, weapons of mass destruction. He said, well, I'm not sure that's exactly lies. The people who said it believed it. And I, I fair enough. I think that's, I think that's true. But when I look at what Putin and and the state media are saying about Nazis running Ukraine and everything of that sort. Well, those are 
that's a steady diet of lies, or I'm not even sure that some of them don't sort of believe that. I don't know for sure, but whatever. At the end of the day, there were these enormously misleading things that I was told and I believed, and that the, a lot of people in Russia are being told and they believe. And, and I would also add that on the American media front, if you remember, the mainstream media had all these reporters embedded with the troops, and they a lot of the mainstream reporting on this, a lot of what, probably most of what I saw was was just sort of pro-war. It, it just was, it was not objective, unbiased reporting. So that was similar too. And under those circumstances, I was willing to support my country in launching a foreign invasion that killed over time, I mean, over time, uh, probably a couple hundred thousand civilians. And I was more, willing to stop more. Yeah. Some people think it could be five times that. They're really different estimates. I, I was I was going with the with the low estimate because uh, I don't know, and it's not my area of expertise. But cr a, a inhuman number of civilian casualties, and I was willing to say to myself, "Yeah, that's a shame, but that's sort of the cost of freeing this country." Or and that was the other thing similar to Russia is that I had this illusion, this just crazy illusion in my head that democracy would spread through the Middle East and we'd be welcomed as liberators. And this was the cost of that. And I would say that that is somewhat similar to the illusion that Russians may have started this war with about Ukraine and what, that they would be greeted as liberators and that it was essentially practically part of Russia anyway. So I look at those analogies and I think, I've been there. And, and not only that, my leader at the time, George Bush, I'm not sure he was acting that differently from Putin, but I did not think and still do not think that Bush was, a, you know, a terrible, irredeemable villain. That's not how I think about him. So I'm not sure that's the right way to, to think about Putin either. What I see is they are getting sucked up into the same type of tragedy, of poor thinking, of kind of unconscious thinking that I did too. And as we know, Andrew, I was not the only one. Joe, um, we, we did actually do a show a few weeks ago comparing the Iraq war and the war in Ukraine in a similar context, not so much in terms of propaganda, but in terms of oil. Um, we had a guest arguing that they're both oil wars, both driven by um, the need to, um, uh, to secure oil reserves. Um, and we've had Daniel Yergin, the great oil gas expert on the show, couple of times recently talking about that. I don't think Jürgen thinks like that. Might there be some truth as well in, in terms of comparing the war, the, the US war in Iraq and uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine as being oil wars? My view is that uh, sort of single factors like that are almost always one factor in a many, many factored explanation. But I generally, when I look at the various motivations and the various things people believe and that they tell themselves, I don't think that something like that is the primary way to understand it. It should more be seen as, as one more layer, that America went to war in Iraq, not for oil and not for money, uh, but out of fear and anxiety and mistaken fantasies about American exceptionalism and transforming the world, and that the the series of sort of bad ideas that Russia had here are different from ours in Iraq, but are not primarily around oil or money. Uh, Joe, you're not only very well known as um, the producer of The Americans, but um, you work for the CIA. You even wrote a book about it, a novel, An Ordinary Spy. 
Did the CIA screw up here? How, how have the American Secret Service performed when it comes to our intelligence on Putin's Russia? I don't really know. You know, most of what I read about that is just what makes it into the newspapers. And one of the things I learned from spending a couple of years at the CIA was that what's in the newspapers is not necessarily going to be right. By the way, there's some very good reporting. Uh, you know, the Washington Post, New York Times, they sometimes, I think, do great reporting on intelligence, but it's still limited. In, and to sort of answer a broad question like that, you would have to sort of be in there working on that and on top of that, be able to do a do a study about it. So I don't know. I've certainly been, you know, interested to watch what a lot of people are remarking upon, which is there's been this sort of strategy by the Biden administration to try to get ahead of Russia by re releasing intelligence about, you know, what they know about what's what they were planning. And, and I thought that was that was interesting because normally you see that the sort of golden rule is you keep it all to yourself so that you don't compromise your sources and your methods. So that was an interesting uh, policy choice and a kind of interesting tactic. But beyond that, I, I haven't I can't say anything about the, how, how the intelligence community is doing. Joe, I'm very intrigued by your comparison of the, the Bush war in Iraq versus Putin war in Ukraine. Uh, it seems as if, judging from um, what we know, at least about Russia, that there is some resistance to Putin, that uh, Russian dissidents are turning to Telegram. Masha Gessin, one of the most authoritative American writers on Russia, talk about a huge uh, emigration like after the like after the uh, the Bolshevik Revolution, Bush's invasion of Iraq didn't change America. It certainly, people like yourself changed your mind, but it didn't result in people leaving America. It didn't result in profound cultural or even political changes. Do you think this war is going to change Russia dramatically? Is it going to be like, as some people suggest, the this, this massive emigration of, of a Russian liberal intelligentsia going to Turkey, coming to the West, to Germany, to the United States? I, I don't know how to make a prediction about that. It, it's, you know, generally speaking, uh, you know, Masha's piece on that was really interesting and really powerful and really sad. And I think it sort of highlights the fact that for a country to be to a certain degree undergoing some kind of brain drain, but then have the leader of that country say that's a good thing because the traders are leaving. That's quite tragic. And it's hard to it's hard to imagine any way in which that isn't both reflecting and going to play out as some national disaster. But we have to wait a while and we have to see who goes back, who doesn't go back. You know, it's important to remember that the liberal intelligentsia was a is not a dominant factor in Russian culture or politics. Well, certainly not in Russian politics, uh, probably a broader influence in culture. But, you know, you go back, I remember one of the most interesting things I learned during the Cold War was that after an entire, whatever, two decades of my life, uh, believing that the dissidents represented the majority of the Russian people, but that the people just couldn't say how much they liked them, that that wasn't true at all. The dissidents represented a very small proportion of opinion uh, and were not heroes to most people and did not become so after the fall of the Soviet Union either, but they don't look back and credit the dissidents. They don't really look back and blame them either, which which I guess is which I guess is good. Uh, but how much this how much this affects Russian society is is very hard to tell. And I am I am smart enough to stay away from any predictions. You are a Russophile, for better or worse, I think. Uh, we've done a number of shows on 19th early 20th century Russian culture, politics. We did a show 
with the great biographer of Dostoevsky, Kevin Birmingham. We did a show with uh, uh, Vladimir Alexandrov on a man called Boris Savinkov, one of the most legendary, remarkable figures in the Bolshevik Revolution. How, how does this play in the history of Russia? Is this just another familiar chapter, Joe, of overreach, of stupidity, of insecurity, of absurd aggression overseas in, 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 in terms of Russian history and perhaps of paranoia in its relations with the West. Is there anything new about this chapter? Uh, it's very hard to tell from this perspective. You know, if you look at them seizing Crimea just not that long ago, uh, it seems unlikely that a hundred years later, that's going to be looked back on as any kind of disaster or that negatively, you know, how this plays a hundred years from now may depend on what happens between now and now and when the war ends, you know, you could see it being anything from forgotten to the beginning of the end of the Putin era, by the way, people hear that and they think, and then it ushered in a more liberal era. There's absolutely no reason to expect that if Putin goes down for this or just finally gets too old or is actually has cancer or whatever it is, that he'll be replaced by somebody more liberal. He could, you know, one of the, it's interesting when you, when you get close enough to Russian politics, you start to understand why people claim that Putin is a centrist. You know, we see him as a, as so uh, right wing that the idea that he could actually be a centrist is hard to, hard to quite understand, but I think is correct. You know, Putin has not traditionally aligned himself with the fascists in Russia. He's put the neo-Nazis and neo-fascists in jail. He has not really done what the hard, what the most hardliners suggested or, or tried to kind of propagandize for. He's been a little more middle of the road, and that's probably one of the reasons he has always had a very high level of, of popular support. So whether the future is to the right of him or to the left of him or you know, somehow miraculously right where he is, is very hard to know and very hard to predict. You know, all we have to do is remember how off guard, if you're old enough, all you have to do is remember how off guard, how surprised we all were by the collapse of the Soviet Union to know that that it's very unpredictable, that part of the world. And then the scary thing is that probably applies to us too, probably also unpredictable. Yeah, the world is unpredictable. The one thing though, that is predictable, Chris, for Blackman reminded of this in his conversation we had and also in his book, Why We Fight, The Roots of War and the Past to Peace, is that there will be a need, Joe, for a peace here. There's always a peace after war. And of course, we, quote unquote, in the West, will be negotiators in that peace. What kind of peace, um, Joe, should we be seeking. I'm, I'm guessing that we shouldn't want to humiliate Putin if he's still around. Uh, I, I think that's right. I'm not sure we would have the, the power to demand a humiliating peace anyway, but it seems well, like even if we did, even we if we did, uh, no, I think that's, I think that's a very good instinct. You know, that's the, that's the great lesson learned from world war one is don't humiliate your enemy. And the lesson of world war two is when you learn that lesson, things go better. So yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Let me tell you two things that I've read recently that I think are interesting. Um, I've been reading a fair amount of material out of the Valdai discussion club, which is a group of foreign policy experts in, in Russia. I've frequently heard it sort of dismissed as just, you know, a bastion of, of Putin propaganda. I would Could you repeat people, that? Sorry, I missed that first time around. Yeah, it's called the Valdai, V-A-L-D-A-I Discussion Club, and yeah. often derided as sort of Putin propaganda. But when I 
I'm sure I've only read 1% of the material, but what I've read is not that. It is aligned generally probably with the Putin-esque foreign policy, but it's very thoughtful and sophisticated foreign policy thinking in a way. If you can't understand Putin, this is a chance to see some sort of intellectual foreign policy experts talking about what they think and why his approach, you know, makes sense, but in a, in, you know, without sort of the uh, aggressive rhetoric. So uh, I want to say two things that I that I read there that I thought were interesting about what you're what you're asking me. One is that one writer was offering the perspective that although it is probably undeniable that there's been a kind of self fulfilling prophecy here that by invading Ukraine, NATO is going to maybe expand <laughs> and Russia is going to get more encircled and therefore has created the exact thing he wanted to not have happen. But this writer's perspective on that was that that's a double-edged sword, and the other edge is in Russia's favor, which is, even if that happens, Russia has shown that it will fight, that it will make war, and that NATO has to be careful, and that that will kind of balance out the the further encroachment of NATO. Now, I don't, I have no position on that. I don't have anything to say about it. I think it's interesting. I think it's an interesting perspective, interesting way to look at it. And then another piece that I also think came out of there, which was just talking about sanctions. You know, I wrote extensively about sanctions in my book and how ineffective they've traditionally been, you know, particularly in regards to the Soviet Union and Russia. You know, a lot of people thought that, and they may be right, that this was a whole new level and a whole new kind of sanctions, more like what was used against Iran, much more damaging long-term, even if we haven't quite seen that damage so severely yet in Russia. So the, the question being explored in this piece was how much when we get to a peace is the West willing and able to lift sanctions? Because obviously that would be a major goal would be that a, a peace in Ukraine would also get sanctions lifted against the Russian economy. So that's just something interesting to think about. I think this writer was trying to discuss the fact that could you trust the West? If the rest, if the West agreed to lift sanctions, why won't they just put them back on a year later in response to something else they don't? Well, then want. they could reinvade Ukraine. <laughs> yes, that's exactly. I mean, right. that's always the nature of the piece. Finally, um, Joe, uh, have the political scientist, very distinguished political scientist, Bruce Bueno de Mesquita, on the show. He has a new book out explaining why the West became the West, and he explains implicitly, at least in the book of why China and Iran and, of course, Russia aren't democracies. Do we need to simply give up this fantasy of turning a place like Russia with its own unique circumstances, cultures, traditions into a democracy? Do we need to give up the idea of turning Russia into America? Yes, we ought to give up the idea of turning anybody into America. Uh, Every war we have undertaken probably not, it's probably not be fair to say every, but most foreign policy decisions we have taken based on the idea that we will export democracy have turned into terrible, terrible disasters. More people get hurt than helped. Democracy, democracies do not rise out of those ashes. Well, what about the Second World War? Yes, you have those. These are the exceptions. Germany and Japan are the exceptions. Germany did have, uh, you know, a democratic history, so it was a little more understandable there. Japan was, I would guess I would say the exception that, that proves the rule. But we can also go around the world and look at all these democratizing wars like Iraq that killed hundreds of thousands of people and and no democracy in sight. So I think it is time to, I, I didn't read the article you pointed to, but I can almost tell from the title, <laughs> look at a country's history, look at a country's culture and recognize that our democracy came out of very specific history and culture. And you can't force that on somebody else. 
Well, this is good stuff. Not everyone would agree with Joe's take. Uh, his book, Russia Upside Down, an exit strategy for the Second World War is, if anything, I think perhaps even more pertinent. It will divide a, a lot of readers, but he's a brave man to take this position. Um, he's also, as I said, the author of the American, I mean, the, I think you're the, what, what were you, the founding editor, the uh, inventor the, the, of the, the American? Creator. I like, inv- I was the creator, but I like the word inventor. Okay. You invented the Americans and <laughs> your day job is as a scriptwriter. You're working at the moment on another um, successful series for television. Congratulations, um, Joe, on that and on the Americans and on, on the book on Russia. Uh, finally, uh, Joe, what? What are you reading these days? Any good books for you to suggest? Anything that uh, might be a little counterintuitive? You seem to me a, a counterintuitive thinker. You don't think like everybody else. Yeah, I'll recommend a couple of things. One isn't a book, but I just want to direct people towards their internet and go to the Quincy Institute, which is a group that is doing, I think, incredible work. I just discovered them myself, incredible work thinking about foreign policy and U.S. militarism and what to do. So I highly recommend that. Uh, In terms of books, I'm reading a book by the uh, military historian and other Jeffrey Roberts called Stalin's Library. And if you are like me, interested in Stalin, it is a great look at his life in his mind by examining his enormous collection of books and sort of what he wrote in the margins of these books. So really, uh, I hate you. Wow, hate to, I have you to get to, him you on the show. It sounds like an interesting book. Yeah, yeah. If, if you if you're a reader, you know, I, I hate to say fun and Stalin in the same sentence, but if you were interested in Stalin, it's, it's a really fun, interesting, interesting read. Uh, and then the uh, I guess the only other thing I'll say, and I don't know if I should recommend this or not, I'm reading a book. I think it's called Breath or Breathing. It's a very popular bestseller, uh, the thesis of which is you really ought to breathe through your nose, not your mouth. So I've been trying to breathe through my nose. It's going okay. I'm not sure it's really done much good, but an interesting book. Well, you look very healthy, Joe. Uh, and finally, <laughs> you. uh, and, and you're an ex-CIA guy. You invented the Americans. You've got your <laughs> nose or your mouth or whatever it is all over the place. Um, what? Uh, who, who's running the world in... Uh, Middle of April, 2022, <laughs> Joe Weisberg. Who, who, well, not, who's running the show these days? That's a, that's a great question. It's not the CIA. Yeah, uh, as I an ex-CIA guy, you know that better yeah, than I'm, anyone. I'm sure it's not the CIA. I don't think it's a military industrial complex. I guess I would say it's something like the... Uh, it's something like the unconscious mind of our political minds of our political leaders, which I am not comfortable with. I don't think the world should be in the hands of the unconscious minds of our political leaders, but I would say that 